Gateway family. It's been a good morning so far, hasn't it? My heart is full getting to introduce our new members earlier, seeing Will's baptism. Will, we're thankful just for God's grace at work in your life and to get to celebrate that with you, to sing to the Lord of his amazing grace. I am I'm thankful that God came up with the idea of the church and that we get to gather together in praise and in worship and what we've already done. We're continuing our journey through the book of Ephesians, and we've been seeing a lot over the last few months in this book of what God has done for us. We've been seeing a lot of God's love for us, a love that far surpasses what we could ever imagine, a love that's not conditioned upon what we do, a love that is amazing and infinite for us. We've been seeing how God has forgiven us. We've seen how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. But one thing we've seen all throughout Ephesians that we saw when we worked through the Gospel of John last year before this particular book is that when we've experienced the love of God, it changes us. Experiencing the love of God changes us in so many ways. And friends, today we come to the topic of how God's love in our lives and how our experience of knowing God changes us in terms of our views on sex and sexuality. So I want you to find in your copy of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 5. I just want to say to our guests in particular, primarily the way we teach here at Gateway is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And the reason for that is because it takes us to texts that we, would, that we love and that are our favorite, but it also takes us to texts that perhaps make us a little bit more uncomfortable or they're not our favorites, but that we need to hear because God has given us the whole Bible for a reason. Because the whole counsel of God's Word is important in our lives. And so we go verse by verse to make sure we see the whole counsel of God's Word. And in the providence of God, we come today to Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 3. The topic of sex and sexuality may not be a topic you're accustomed to hearing in the church. The church, for the most part, has been pretty silent on this topic, even though the Word of God addresses it. Now, even though the church, for the most part, is silent, it's not a topic that we don't hear about. The news is full of references to sex and sexually related crimes. There was two local ones I saw in the news even this week. Our culture is full of conversations about sex. And then, for honest, the entertainment that we're exposed to, what we hear in music, what we watch in movies and television, is full of a lot of messages about sex and sexuality. Well, friends, what we ex- we're exposed to in our culture is not anything new. What we're exposed to is no different than what it was like in AD 62 when Paul wrote this letter to the people in the city of Ephesus. When Paul penned these words that we're reading this morning in AD 62, he was writing to Christians in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was a town much like Montgomery, you've heard me say before. It was a city about the size of Montgomery. It was a city where there was much home of politics in the region. It was a city to where there was much cultural things going on. But Ephesus was a city full of talk and practice of sexuality. There was a temple that you've heard me talk about in the middle of the city. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple to Artemis. And the temple actually had ritual prostitutes in it. The people would go to the temple and they would pay money to have sex in the temple as a form of worship to this goddess in their city. It was very common and accepted in the city of Ephesus for men to be having sex with their slaves, for incest to happen in families. All that and so much more was accepted and celebrated in the life of the city of Ephesus. And God knew that his followers in Ephesus would struggle to follow God's plan, to to follow God's plan for sexuality in such a context as that. So in his love for them, he had the Apostle Paul pen these words, write these words to these young believers to give them instruction and guidance of how to follow Christ in a city like that. But friends, God knows the struggle for you and I to follow his plan for sexuality is difficult as well in the context that we live in because the context we live in is very similar to the context of Ephesus. And so God in his kindness to us and his love for us preserved these words for us as well. And so we come this morning to Ephesians chapter 5, 
verse 3. I do want to remind us that this sentence that we're going to look at today is not isolated. This is not just us pulling one verse out of context in Scripture just to say something. We're seeing an overall flow of thought. When Paul wrote this, there were no verse breaks. There weren't even sentence breaks in the Greek. You just wrote and wrote and wrote kind of in a free form. And so what we're looking at today, we must understand as part of the big picture of all that Paul is saying to the people in Ephesus and to us as well. He spent for us in our divisions three chapters, half of this book, telling us what God has done for us. The first half of the book has no commands for us to follow. The first half of the book is all about God's glorious greatness, how amazing He is, His love for us, what God has done for you and me. It's all about what God has done and how He's changed us. And now chapters 4, 5, and 6 that we're in is about how our lives are different because we've experienced the love of God. With that in view, we come to Ephesians chapter 5. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Now we're focusing on verse 3. I want us to go back to verse 1 to see this flow of thought because what we see today about sexuality flows very much out of what Paul has just said in the previous two sentences. So let's start in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. If you're a guest, the words are on the screen. I'm reading out the English Standard Version of Scripture. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Would you pray with me? Father, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the whole counsel of your word. That God, in your love for us, you haven't left us wondering who you are, who we are, what it means to follow you, even how you want us to live in this world in such a way that will glorify you and bring good to us and to others. And so, Lord, I pray as we come to this topic of sexuality today, God, that you would give us much grace, Lord, to understand your will, your plans. But, Lord, much grace to understand why you've given these things to us, why you've given these commands, and why you speak in to all areas of our life, including this. Lord, I pray you give me much grace to articulate clearly what your word says. I pray you give us ears to hear your word. God, your Holy Spirit will work in each heart to speak to us as only you can to show us how this verse changes each one of our lives where we are. And we will give you the praise for what, you're, what you do through your word and through your Holy Spirit applying it this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One thing I want you to see this morning that we're going to unpack this morning is this, that we are to live out our new identity in Christ in all areas of our life, including our sexuality. Again, our main idea this morning is we are to live out our new identity in Christ in all areas of our life, including our sexuality. That when we follow Christ, He changes everything in our lives. He is about transforming us into being who He desires for us to be. And so He's changing us because of our belief, and that includes our sexuality. Now, the focus of this text is not a don't do this list. I think so often the churches approach sexuality as as a list of things not to do. But that's not the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is who we are in Jesus and how he changes my speech, how he changes my thoughts, how he changes my relationships, and how he changes my views on sex and sexuality. But it's also, if I can remind us what we see all throughout Ephesians, when we come to commands like this, this is not what I call white-knuckle determination. This is not to just hang on and try harder to please God. That's not at all what, what God's word is to do for us. God's word is to show us our absolute need for him and how following Christ releases his power where he changes us, not us changing ourselves. We are to live out our new identity in Christ in every area of our life, including in our sexuality. I want to start with a big picture of what God has done for us because that's the foundation of anything 
we'll talk about. It's what we're celebrating in Will's baptism this morning. Just to remind us that God made us for a relationship with Him. We were created to know Him and be in a relationship with Him. But the very first people on earth, Adam and Eve, sinned. Sin just means they disobeyed God. They brought brokenness into the world. And ever since brokenness came into the world, that perfect relationship with God that we were made for has been broken. And there's an emptiness and a void in all of our hearts because something's not right, because we're not unified with our Creator like we should be. And ever since Adam and Eve first fell into the temptations to sin, ever since every single one of us has been born with a propensity to do what's wrong, a propensity to do evil, a propensity to go our way instead of going God's way. So every single one of us is born separated from our Creator, that there's a longing in our hearts to be right with Him. But there's nothing that you or I can do to get back to our Creator. Our Creator, God Almighty, is perfect. He's infinitely perfect. We use the word holy to describe that. And because He's holy, because He's perfect, He can't have sin. He can't have evil. He can't have that brokenness in His presence. Or He would cease to be perfect. There was no way for us to get to God. So God did what we couldn't do. He came to us when we couldn't get to Him. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 2. We were told to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. We're told that Jesus came to us on a mission. He came not just to be a nice example for us. Jesus came to give himself up for us. That means he came to die. Jesus came to fulfill all the law perfectly because he had to be a perfect sacrifice. That means Jesus came to never sin sexually. He never fell into any of the temptations that you and I fall into. He perfectly fulfilled not only that, but every single part of the law from speaking truthfully to obeying his parents. He never sinned. He never broke any of God's commands so he could be a perfect sacrifice to die in our place. And with him being the perfect sacrifice for us, taking on the punishment that we deserve, a way was made for us to be restored to God. If you notice here in Ephesians 5, verse 2, it says, He gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What in the world does that mean? This is imagery from the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, because the Bible is not a bunch of little stories put together. The Bible is one story of who God is and how He's making a way for us to know Him. It's a story of the bigness of God. The, this fragrant offering means that God the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice for us in our place. When God the Father looked on God the Son, Jesus dying and suffering, taking the punishment you and I deserve, He was pleased with that. He accepted that. So when we believe in Christ, All of our sins got put on Jesus, and all of Jesus' goodness, His righteousness got put on us. The Father accepted Christ in our place, and so we get a relationship with Him. I think so often, friends, the church has taught that you trust in Christ so you don't go to hell. Well, that's a benefit of it, but what it's about is about relationship, being restored to a right relationship with our Creator. What you see on the screen, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we looked at some months ago. It talks about that God has raised us up with Him, with Christ, and has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That God has rescued us through what Jesus did. When we believe Christ, as Will has believed in Christ, we are seated with God in the heavenly places. This is the imagery of a relationship. When you have someone over to your house and they sit in your den with you and you talk and have coffee, when they sit at your dinner table, you're in relationship with them. And Christ came to die in our place so that we could have a relationship with God. And friends, the more we spend time in relationship with God, the more we are changed. But think about this. When you're a high school or college student or even now as an adult, when you spend time with your friends, you pick up their mannerisms. 
There are probably mannerisms you have because you've been hanging out with the same people the last few years, and you start going, oh, I did it just the same way so-and-so did it. Or kids sometimes will realize, I've just done that the way my mom and dad did. Oh, Lord, help me right now. You know, we all tend to imitate the people we're in relationship with. And that's exactly what following Christ is all about. We don't imitate him to come to him, but because we, he's accepted us, because he's brought us to himself, he's died in our place. As we spend time with him, we now begin to imitate him. That's what verse 1 is all about. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, why? Therefore, because of all God has done, be imitators of God as beloved children. Not to become beloved children, but because you already are a beloved child of God, now you imitate him as you spend time with him. We obey God not to gain his approval, but because we already have his approval. We obey him now because the more we spend time with him, the more we trust his goodness. The more we spend time with God, the more we realize that he knows what's best. We think about your friendships right now. If you have a good friend and you truly love your friend, and you see your friend hurting themselves in some way, you don't sit by passively. If you really care about your friend and you see them doing something that's going to harm them, in your love for them, you tell them, hey, I'm worried about you in this. And in a relationship with them, you help them in that. As children of God, we realize that God knows best in all things. And in his love for us, he warns us of danger. That's what the commands of Scripture are about. They show us dangerous paths. And God in his love for us doesn't just let us wander down those. He shows us what they are because he cares about us. Therefore, we obey all that he has said because we know that he knows best. That's what verse 3 that we come to today is all about. Look back in Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as, this is really important here, as is proper among saints. Don't miss that word as. Small word, but really important. It's a Greek word, kathos, which means what follows is the reason for what came before. He says there shouldn't be sexual immorality in your life. And as, here's the reason why, because of what's proper among the saints. He said the reason why you shouldn't have sexual immorality in your life is because you are a saint. You don't get rid of sexual immorality to become a saint. He said because you already are a saint, you should not have this in your life. Saint literally means holy ones. The friends, in God's eyes, he sees us as holy ones. Not because of our behavior, but because of what Christ has done for us. When Christ died on the cross in our place, not only was all of our sin put on Jesus, but all of Jesus' goodness, all of his righteousness was credited to us, was given to us. And so when we approach God the Father, he doesn't see us as one who struggles with pornography. He doesn't see us as one who struggles with anger. He doesn't see one who's a former adulterer. He sees Christ. If you're a child of God, when you walk before the presence of God the Father, because not because of anything in you, But because of what Christ has done for you, you're covered with Christ's righteousness. God sees you as a saint, as a holy one, because of what he has done. And now because he sees you as a saint, because as you're standing before God, he says back to Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are now, because we already have the status of being holy in God's sight, now we have the strength and the desire to imitate God because we are his children. That means we imitate him and we obey him and we follow him in all areas of our life. And yes, that includes how we view, talk about, think about, and practice sex. So what is God's plan for sex? The scripture is full of this. And again, the church I fear so often is silent on it to where we only get our worldview from what Hollywood teaches us. But there's two things I want you to see in terms of understanding God's plan for sex and sexuality, because there's so much confusion in the church on these two things. The first one is this. Sex is God's idea, and it is good. Sex is God's idea, and it is good. 
We believe there is a very real, all-powerful, sovereign creator who is so powerful that he spoke the universe into existence. At the sound of his voice, the sun is made. This planet spin into motion. We believe that God speaks the world into being. This all-wise, all-powerful, all-good creator, all, always existing God made us as well. The way our bodies look is God's design. He designed our bodies physically. The idea of sex and reproduction was God's idea. He's the one who invented the reproductive structures on our bodies. He's the one who put nerve endings in them so we could feel sensation. He's the one who gave us a sexual drive. Sexual drive is not a result of the fall and the curse and the brokenness. No, it it existed before brokenness, before the curse. It is good. When God made the world and made all the world and said, it is good, that includes sex and sexuality and sexual drive and sexual urges. God made it and it is good. God has commanded us to pursue those sexual drives. He doesn't call us to be asexual creatures without drives. He commands us to pursue it, but he commands us to pursue it in a relationship that he's created called marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. I want you to see that up on the screen as we go back to the first book of the Bible. Early command of Scripture, Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is all about marriage. One flesh is a, is a word for oneness. You'll hear us talk a lot as we get into the marriage messages in the weeks to come as we get, keep going through Ephesians 5, that God's plan for marriage is oneness. That means we, that you and your spouse are one, are connected mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and yes, physically. Oneness or unity is God's plan for marriage, and the culmination of that is the sexual experience in marriage. Now, it goes on in the very next verse in Genesis chapter 2. 25 to say, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I joke with people sometimes that when I visit people's homes in the church, I look for what scriptures they have framed and hanging over their sofa and places. I've yet to see any of you with this verse hanging in your house. But this is good. This is the word of God. This is God's plan for us. That in marriage and in God's plan, he made our bodies. He invented marriage. He made sex good. And because of that, there is no shame in marriage. It is God's good gift and God's good design that is to be celebrated within the context of marriage. So the first thing I want us to see is to realize that sex is God's idea and it is good. But second of all, I want us to understand why he gave us sex. Obviously, it is for reproduction, but I don't want you to miss this because there's a lot of confusion in the church. This is the second thing I want you to see. Sex is to be used to serve your spouse. Sex is to be used to serve your spouse. So many couples I've counseled over the years in pastoral ministry have wrecked their relationship on this point. Sex is to be used to serve your spouse. So many people go into marriage, even people who've tried to honor God sexually in their pre-marriage years, go into marriage approaching sexuality in terms of, I get what I want, my pleasure, my desires, my dreams, my fantasies. And that's not the way God designed it. Sex is a tool that God gives you to serve your spouse. When we use sex just for our own pleasure without caring about our spouse, that is unbiblical And that's detrimental to the relationship. Ephesians chapter 5, go back to verse number 2 here. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're told that the model for love in our lives is to love how Christ loved us. Christ did not love us with a demanding love. He did not love us with a selfish love. He served us. He loved us with a service, a sacrificial love, even willing to die for our good. That's the model for us of how we love. And so when it comes to sex in marriage, the model is a selfless, sacrificial serving of your spouse. Now, I want to say a word to husbands here on this because you, in God's design, are the leader of your family. That doesn't mean you're just going to lord it over everyone. It means you're to set the example 
and your family. God will hold you to a standard of how you have led your family in all areas. He will require you one day, we say in the scripture, to give an account. That means to explain what you've done or not done. Now, don't you see Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, this is a command particularly to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men in the room who are married, you will one day stand before a holy God and answer to a holy God of how you and I have done loving our wives. Not demanding, not lording over them, but loving them with a sacrificial, dying love to serve them in the same way Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? I think this verse is explained by Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way, husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church is you do not demand your wife to serve you. You serve her instead of demanding her to serve you. I'd encourage you, husbands, to meditate on Ephesians 5, 5, 2, 5, and Mark 10, 4, and think about those because your model in marriage for how you approach everything in your life, from physical protection to financial provision to sex, as you're going into your marriage with a heart to serve your wife, not to demand her to serve you. With those two things in place, again, I want you to see that the goal of, of sex and marriage is oneness and is serving your spouse. That is God's good, gracious, and amazing plan. But friends, that plan gets very, very corrupted. Why does that good plan, something that God made that to be so amazing and so good and so holy and so wonderful to serve your spouse, why is it so corrupted today? Well, there's a very real reason because there's a very real enemy who hates God. Sometimes we, call, we joke about him, call him the devil, but he's a very real spiritual being. His name is Satan or Lucifer. And Satan hates, all, hates God. He hates all that God's doing. He also particularly hates marriage. Why does he hate marriage so? Well, Genesis 2. What we were just looking at a few minutes ago. Marriage is the very first institution that God makes. Before there's a church, there's marriage. Before there's government, there's marriage. The very first institution, if you will, that God makes is marriage. And so Satan wants to do all he can to wreck this fundamental institution to God's created order. But he also hates marriage because of what it's supposed to represent. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. I want you to see this verse on the screen. Again, we'll get to this in more in depth in a few weeks as we continue to work through Ephesians 5. But again, he quotes from Genesis 2 here, and Paul writes people in Ephesus, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we were just talking about that, that oneness that comes physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. But notice the next verse in verse 32. What's so significant? This mystery, this mystery of oneness that includes sex and emotional and spiritual oneness, all that together, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. When a husband and wife pursue one another with a sacrificial, selfless love to serve one another, and they do so with Christ at the head of their relationship, it becomes a picture of what God designs and how he relates to the church. And the enemy wants to do all he can to wreck marriages reflecting the picture of Christ and the church. And so he's going to do anything he can to destroy that. How does he corrupt sex, and how does he try to wreck God's plan for marriage and creation through this? He does two things. First, he tries to push sex outside of the covenant relationship of marriage. God made this very strong desire inside each one of us for sexual desire. But God put the boundaries of a covenant, a promised relationship where it can be expressed safely in a way that brings no harm to others, but that rather builds others up in the context of marriage. And so Satan's going to do all he can to push the expression of sexuality outside of that covenant relationship that becomes a picture of Christ and the church the first thing he does to corrupt it. The second thing Satan does to corrupt it is he tries to tempt us to make us think that sex is all about me. He tries to make sex self-focused. Instead of using sex as a tool to serve your spouse, to help them be all that God wants them to be, 
Satan tempts it to be all about you and your pleasure and what you want and your dreams and your fantasies. Notice Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Look back at how he begins it. But sexual immorality and all impurity, but don't miss this next word, or covetousness. Why in the world is covetousness linked to sexual immorality here? The word covet is the same word as greed. Perhaps some of your translations use greed here. To covet or to greed, to be covetous or to be greedy is the same thing. If you're coveting or greedy, that means you want more than you have. It means you want what you do not have, or you want something that belongs to another person. That's coveting. You're not content with what God has given you. You do not believe you're a well-provided for child of God. So you want more than you have, you want what you do not have, and you want what belongs to another. Is it random that covetousness is linked here with sexual immorality? No. Again, notice how Paul puts it together. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, all he lumps all three of these together almost in a synonymous way. Because, friends, I'm convinced that sexual sins are ultimately selfish. Sexual sins are ultimately self-serving and are ultimately greedy. It's about a person pursuing their own pleasure, getting what they want. And in the end, they end up hurting other people and they end up hurting themselves. And just as a, a true friend, when they sees their friend going down a dangerous path, loves them enough to warn them of the danger that they're going down, God in his infinite love for us that we looked at last week knows who we are, knows the power of sex, but knows the danger of it outside of the way he's designed it to operate. And he loves us enough to care about us and to know the harm that will come to us if we do not follow his plan and the harm that we will bring to other people if we do not follow his plan. So he gives us these commands for our good and for the good of those around us. And so he prohibits some things. Again, look back at verse 3. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. The first term here is the word sexual immorality. And the word Greek is the Greek word pornea. That sounds familiar. It's where we get the English word pornography from. It's the Greek word pornea here. Pornea has been used throughout history to refer to, to if you call it premarital sex, sex before marriage. That's obviously in view in terms of sexual immorality. But it's a much broader term than just premarital sex, so that's included with it. Within sexual morality, when this term encompasses things like adultery, you see in God's word where that's prohibited. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus, this is Jesus being said, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Then the very next verse, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So sexual immorality here in Ephesians 5 encompasses premarital sex and encompasses adultery. also encompasses prostitution. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Paul writes to the people in Corinth, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So prostitution is included with that. Homosexuality would be included with that. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Then in verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts of men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Also included in this term of sexual morality is incest. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Then in verse 2, Paul says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So I mention all those things because that's all included within this term pornea, this term sexual immorality. And I show you all those scriptures because I want you to realize and when the church talks about sexual immorality, it's not we're trying to come up with some arbitrary standard of what's right or what's wrong. We're trying to go to the counsel of God's word and see how God designed it to be used and what is inconsistent with his 
plan. And all those things I just mentioned are inconsistent with the character of God because all those things I just mentioned take the good gift of sexuality and push it outside of that covenant relationship of marriage. But friends, it's not just our actions that Jesus cares about. He also cares about our hearts and what we do privately when no one is looking. In fact, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, notice the next term. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity. This word impurity is a broad term. It literally just means anything unclean. So Paul takes a step further back. Anything unclean is now in view. This means what we see with our eyes when no one's looking, what we think about in our minds are included in what God commands on this. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. Jesus takes the command from the Old Testament. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But in verse 28, notice what Jesus does with it. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Friends, sin is sin to God. There are not some sins that are better. There are some sins that are worse. Friends, our culture's kind of treated some respectable sins and some awful sins and kind of greater things. God doesn't view it that way. Sin is sin. If you lie, you displease God. If we look at a woman lustfully, you displease God. If you commit adultery, it displeases God. All these are sins. Sin are sin. And so Jesus takes it to the heart. What we see, pornography, would fall under sexual immorality. What we think about fantasies are fall under sexual immorality. And how much of even that private sin of fantasies in our mind and pornography will Christ tolerate in our lives? Look back at verse 3. But sexual immorality and, notice the next word, all impurity. All, like all of it. He's saying it all has to be gone. Like none of this is to be tolerated or accepted. And friends, particularly on issues of the heart, as I counsel men particularly with issues of pornography and fantasies in their mind, there's so many justifications people make today for indulging in those sins in their lives. But Jesus says all of it, all sexual immorality, all impurity has to be done away with. And in case we miss it, he goes one step further. Notice the next phrase. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Now, what does it mean to not be named? It doesn't mean we cannot use those words. To be named means to describe you. That if someone could hook up a projector here in this room to the thoughts of your mind and show it, there shouldn't be, anyone shouldn't be able to, at the end of that, watching all the thoughts of your mind, be able to say, that person has sexual immorality. It means this shouldn't be a description of your mind, your life, your actions, public or private. This is one of the few times I really like the way the NIV translates this verse better, because it says, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. I think the NIV translators really get that. It's not to be named among you. It's not to describe you privately or publicly. These, these concepts of what we listed in sexual immorality and purity, that shouldn't be able to be, ever be used to describe us if you already are a child of God. And so God says to put off any form, any hint of any type of sexual immorality in our lives. And for instance, we've seen over and over as we study the Ephesians that holiness is not just not sinning. Holiness, pursuing God, means we replace our sinful actions with actions that please Him, with Christ-like character. So what do we replace sexual immorality with in our lives? Well, I want to I want to make a case that we replace sexual immorality with lives that glorify God and serve others. We replace the sexual immorality. It's not just enough to stop looking at porn or to stop committing adultery, though those things need to be stopped. We need to replace it with a life that seeks to glorify God and a life that seeks to serve others. And so, friends, if you're married, what does that look like? That means you put on, you replace sexual immorality with serving your spouse in every way. Yes, that includes sexual, but that includes other ways. That means we seek to follow Christ's example in a husband-wife relationship of Mark 10, 45. 
Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That means we don't demand our spouse to, to clean up after us. We don't demand our spouse to cook just the way we want. We don't demand our spouse to do certain... We, we seek to serve our spouse and not live self-centered lives where our spouse exists for us. We put on, we replace sexual morality with a whole context in a marriage and a home life of seeking to serve our spouse to build them up. And that definitely includes sexuality as well. But what about if you're single? To our single friends in the room, how do, you, how do you put off sexual morality? What do you replace it with? You still replace it with a heart that seeks to glorify God and serve others. Some of you may feel called to singleness. The Apostle Paul who wrote Ephesians actually felt called to singleness. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. He said, I wish that all were as I myself am. He means he's single. He's not married. He's, and he says, I kind of wish all of you could be single like I am. He says, each has his own gift from God, meaning married people have a gift and single people have a gift. And the word here, gift, is the word charisma, the same word for all the spiritual gifts like teaching or administration or mercy. It's the same idea that this is a calling from God. God calls some people to marriage and some people to singleness, one of one kind and one of another. Now, if you're one that you know God has called you to singleness, what do you do with that? Verse 8, he says, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. Why would Paul say it's good for them to remain single? Because he knows that an unmarried person has a lot more time to dedicate to the Lord. And so what an unmarried person does is not just enough to not sin sexually, to put off sexual morality. The unmarried person who feels called to singleness puts on serving others, puts on a life dedicated to God's purposes and ministering to others in Jesus' name. But what about for those of you who are single and don't want to be single, and you struggle with sexual drive and sexual temptation because you, you know you're called to be married? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, the very next verse, Paul addresses that. He says, if they cannot exercise self-control, they are the single people. They should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so if you're single and struggling, God calls you to pursue marriage. Now, I don't pretend that's easy or simple, but you're called to pursue marriage, to pray for it, to be preparing yourself for it, to be seeking the Lord and seeking community around you to help you pursue marriage. Because, friends, if you, if you are not called to singleness and you are struggling with self-control, as he says here, you need to be pursuing marriage. You're, if you're single and struggling with sexual desire, you don't need to become asexual. The, the, the solution is not to get rid of your sexual drive. It's to let your sexual drive steer you right now to a heart of service and then to only express it within the context of marriage when God provides that for you in his proper timing. And so I just encourage you when the temptations arise, if you're single but don't want to be single, to not engage this counterfeit love that the culture throws at us, but rather to trust the goodness of God and serve others instead of serving self in that. Regardless of whether you're single or married, friends, if you are a follower of Christ, if you've experienced his love, you are to live out your identity in Christ in every area of your life, and that includes your sexuality. That means putting off all forms of sexual sin and every hint of it and putting on a lifestyle that seeks to glorify God by serving others. Now, friends, I know that sounds hard. It's not just sounding hard. It's actually impossible on our own. That's the message of the Bible. Not that we can just try harder and clean up our act and get to God. The message of the Bible is, guess what? You struggle with sin and you can't help it unless God rescues you. This is something that we're being called to that we can't do on our own. The reason God holds up a standard of not even a hint of sexual immorality because if you're not a Christian, he's trying to drive you to the place to realize that you can't change this apart from him. And if you are a follower of Christ, he's driving you to a place to say the same strength of God that saved me, that rescued me, is the same strength of God I need today to not walk in sexual sin, but instead to serve other people and live a life that glorify God. So it's actually not just hard, it's impossible on your own. But the good news is, friend, God gives lots of grace to those who will seek him and who desire because they are a child of God, because they want to imitate him. God gives a lot of grace. If you're struggling with this, and based on the statistics, 
If it's true at Gateway like this in most of the world, there's many of you in this room who are dealing with some type of sexual sin. If the statistics hold true, many of the men in this room are dealing with pornography. Many of you in this room have struggled in some way in your, in your life, past or present, with sexual sin. And I'm not here to throw stones here today. I'm here to want to give you hope. We see Hebrews chapter 4. And I want us to end on this one today as, as a message of hope for us, for all those who are struggling. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest. This is Jesus. A great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let me just pause there. This means that because of what Christ has done, we can have confidence in all of the Word of God. We live in a day and age to where the culture is telling us that what we believe about sex is outdated, is antiquated, this is just some, some old standard. No, we hold fast our confession because we know who we belong to, who we believe in. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Now go to verse 15. This is so hopeful. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Let me just pause there. If you're one struggling today with sexual morality... Jesus is not up in heaven looking down on you, shaking his head, going, I can't believe they just did that again. You have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weakness. Why? Because the next phrase, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you realize there's no sexual temptation you face that Jesus did not face? There's whatever temptation you're struggling with in terms of sexual morality, Jesus himself face it. There's no new temptations. There's nothing new under the sun. And whatever you are being tempted with, Jesus himself was tempted with. And when you think no one can understand what I'm going through, I'm here to tell you there are a lot of people who understand what you're going through because they've walked the same path. But there's also even more than that. Your creator, the one who spoke the world into being, the one who came and died in your place to be a sacrifice so that you could be restored to relationship with God. He himself was tempted in every single way you have ever been tempted. Yet unlike us, he never had any sin. Look at the next verse in verse 16 of Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, the hope of Hebrews 4 tied in with Ephesians 5 is this, that because Christ has been tempted as we are yet without sin, when we go to him and say, Lord, I am really struggling with this temptation right now, he can actually look at you and say, I understand I was too. Let me give you grace today. And there was not on the screen. The scripture promised us that no temptation has come to us except what is common to man. And when you're tempted, God will provide a way out. It's an amazing promise scripture. That's not a promise for the whole world. That's a promise if you're a child of God. If you're not a child of God, if you're not a follower of Christ, the Bible says you're a slave to your sin. You're dead in your sins. And you can't help but continue to sin. If you try to, to beat sexual struggles in your life apart from Christ, you're going to keep falling over and over again. But if you will look to your Creator, the one who came and died for you to restore you to a relationship with Him, then He has much grace to give you, much mercy to give you, to bring you up out of that because He's got a better plan for you. Not because He's trying to be prudish, but because He loves you so much. He knows what's best for you and best for those around you and wants you to be all that He can make you to be. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank You for Your Word. I'm thankful for your word on the easy passages and the hard passages. I'm thankful for your word that speaks to all areas of our life. That God, that you love us so much. You don't just tell us, pray this prayer and go about your life, but you tell us what it looks like to be changed by you, how you want our speech to be, what you want our unity to be like, even how you want sexuality in our lives to look like. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark wondering all these things. But thank you for loving us enough to speak to us and to point us to you. Lord, I pray for these precious brothers and sisters today. Thank you for their graciousness and even listening and tackling a harder topic like this today. Lord, I pray that you'll meet each one of us where we are, God. 
And Lord, for the person who's struggling today with some sexual sin that perhaps they never even told anyone else about, that today that they would find confidence that if they are in Christ, they don't have to be bound to that sin anymore. God, you can change them. You can rescue them. Not by them trying harder, but by them looking to your grace. God, I pray that today will be the day that they stop trying in their own strength. The day they look to you and cry to you and say, Lord, rescue me, change me, set me free. God, I pray as well for that person who's been struggling in the dark and secret in some of these sins. Lord, I've never seen anyone get free apart from your word changing them as they bring it to community. But I pray they quit hiding behind what will people think. But God, they'll be willing to find one of the elders, one of the deacons, one of the Sunday school teachers, find some trusted friends to say, hey, I've been pretending for too long. This has been in the dark. And Lord, we know that when we keep sins in the dark, the enemy just has a grip on us. I pray that today there'd be some who have had sins in the dark that they will look to bringing it to the light. Knowing that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because Lord, we know that even sexual sin in our life won't separate us from you if Christ has forgiven us for it. So I pray today for that person who's been hiding in the dark, they would confess their sin to you, but also they would bring it to the light to others who can come alongside them and help them walk in holiness and victory and find freedom to be all that you want them to be, to find your goodness. Lord, as we've seen all throughout Ephesians here, God, you've given us community as your good plan. Just as sex and marriage is your good plan, community is your good plan. You didn't intend for us to just to kind of try harder and do more on our own, but you intended for us to look to you for grace and to have others come alongside us who can help us pursue your grace. Lord, we know all that's only possible for a child of God. But if there's any who are here in this room or who've never trusted in you, who, who Maybe they've even been in church before, but they've never understood what it means to have a relationship with you, to be seated at your table, where they can have a real relationship, where they can talk to the creator, the great I am, and he leads and guides and directs their lives. If they don't understand that, God, today will you let it be the day that you breathe life into their heart and their soul. God, to, to understand what it means to be in relationship with you. God, they would cry out, perhaps even because of some of these sins we talked about in their life, they would see their need, their inability to change, and they would cry out to you. And Lord, as well, though, I know we'll get to it in the weeks to come. God, I pray as well for the, the marriages of Gateway. The husbands and wives would love each other as Christ loved the church. God, we all have, I know in my own heart, so much selfishness. We want things our way. We end up demanding and barking orders and wanting things to be just the way we want it. God, I pray you would give us much grace this week to die to self and to seek to serve our spouses. So the gateway is a place where our home life, not because of our efforts, because of your grace, is a place to where husbands and wives love each other as Christ loved the church in all areas of their life. How would you be in the business of transforming our lives, whether we're married or single, whether we're struggling this area or not, that God, you would be transforming us, that we might see more of your glory and find more of the joy that comes from your goodness as we walk worthy of the calling you've given us. And we'll give you the praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?